Hey, thank you so much for gathering with us wherever you are and whomever you are with. I want to encourage once again, find and form a community group. Find or form a community group. Uh, no matter what your notion is of what a community group looks like, it's a certain size or shape or scope, just throw it away. Whoever you are comfortable with, whoever you know, uh, we would encourage you to gather so you can worship together, pray with one another, do life together. In this unique season, we find ourselves in community groups. We're hearing stories and testimonies of, of people just living life together and finding a faith that is more personal and more practical. So again, we would encourage you, find or form a community group. If you need help, please reach out to us, info at lifechurchvirginia.com, and we will do our best to plant you in a community group. The title of our conversation today, Imagination and Practice, because God has a different perspective in better ways, is simply this, God still sends. God still sends. So uh, let's jump right into our uh, passages today that we've been reading, our hallmark passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. And he, Jesus, said to them, Follow me and I will make you. What a promise. Follow me and I will make you. Revelation 3 verse 20. Behold, this is the voice of Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And finally, our exhortation from Paul, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you so much for your word. We ask that as we gather in these moments, you would mold us, shape us, make us more into your image. God, as we read the scriptures, we ask that they would read us and do a healing work in our souls. We love you, we honor you, and ask that you have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, we're talking about practices a lot, the ways that we think, and how that in change uh, really becomes what we live in our lives, how we act as well. Admittedly, all practices emanating from a decision to follow Jesus take effort. Jesus is not just God. He gives us a way to go in terms of life and activity. It's why we read these scriptures, Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you, Jesus says. Have you ever tried to follow somebody? Even if they're a good leader in a car line, come on somebody, and how difficult it is, how much effort it takes. It actually takes more gas to follow somebody. It takes effort. Revelation 3.20, hey, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. Jesus knocks, but we have to open the door. We have to invite him in. It takes effort. Romans 12, the whole notion of, of this being our spiritual worship, being a living sacrifice, that's not something that God, nor Jesus, nor our parents, nor our spouses, nor anybody else can force upon us. We have to choose to be a living sacrifice. These practices of following Jesus all take our efforts. 
As we tackled lamenting last week and found it a bit awkward to handle, so too do we have a similarly unwieldy relationship with what we're going to talk about today, the beautiful practice of confession. There are lots of keystone moments in David's life that we've been looking at over these last several weeks and will continue out in 2020. His anointing, his choosing is a keystone moment that we speak to and we have already spoken to in this series. His defeat of Goliath, how that launches him into who he is, or rather the role and the position that he will fill. The lesser known fulcrum point of Ziklag, we spoke of that for weeks about prayer and meditation. Absalom's rebellion, uh, the murder of Uriah, and all the surrounding events with Bathsheba and subsequent sending of Nathan by the Lord. And that's what we're going to speak to today from 2 Samuel chapter 12. But I don't want to talk about the consequence of David's sin, the the unfortunate, it's miserable, uh, the organic aftermath. I want to just mention that, be honest. I'm not talking about consequences today. This conversation is not about that. Reverberations, results, the law of sowing and reaping, which honestly none of us can get away from. These are all parts of the natural order of things. But this conversation we're having today is not about that. I want to concentrate on what I see as the central action of this definitive moment when Nathan comes and confronts David. And it's not the consequences. It's not necessarily the actions. We can have conversations about both of those things. But I want to speak to the central action of this moment in 2 Samuel 12, David's confession. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that Nathan is sent by the Lord. David has already sinned. David has been intimate with a married woman in the person of Bathsheba. He then makes sure that Bathsheba's husband Uriah is killed. He, he murders Uriah. All of this unfolds and unpacks. And in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel verse 1, it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. And it goes on the passage describes a story that Nathan the prophet tells David essentially creates an illustration to show David what he has done but really talks about it as if somebody else is doing it David verse 5 David's anger was greatly kindled it says against the man in the story and he said to Nathan as the Lord lives that man who's done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb who had stolen the story fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are that man. And then Nathan goes to unpack some things to David and the consequences of the decisions that he made. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I think we would all agree, uh, despite confession being accepted as a good thing, and let me just drill down on that for a moment. I, I don't mean to communicate confession is fun. I don't mean to say that confession is enjoyable or it even feels good in the moment in any way, shape, or form. I mean it's a good thing in the biblical context. It is fruitful. It bears out towards health. It is a good thing. The Romans 8.28 reality that God can use all things for good. Productivity not necessarily enjoyable. Despite confession being accepted as that good thing, it is ensconced in discomfort. It is inconvenient and not too often really invested. I would call it a rarity in lives today. 
And it makes sense. Why else would a universally revered activity find such little space to breathe? It's simply this, because it challenges our personal comfort. Note the more than likely casual tension that you're feeling right now that we are even talking about confession, embarrassment, palpable shame, a fear of how people are going to actually receive you. It's, it's not overwhelming. It's not incapacitating with negative emotions, but it certainly is a tangible presence of self-inflicted weight and burden. Regrettably, I think we take our lead from many of our political leaders, not just President Trump or President-elect Biden, both of which who display, well, I said it this way, and now they're saying it another way, and they don't want to act like they ever said it the former way. Are you with me? I think we take our lead from many of our political leaders that take the tact that if they don't acknowledge it, then it's not real. They conjure up something other than, and as they say it enough, assume that they just make it so. In much the same way as I discussed last week, your soul needs to lament, even if you don't want to be sad, you don't want to be disappointed, you don't want to be whatever. So does your soul need the release and new granted by the practice of confession. Confession is not always about out there. It has so much more to do with us in here. There's a very familiar passage of scripture, James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. He writes, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I'm not proposing that all confession involves another person. Sometimes it's just you and the nitty-gritty of a moment with Jesus. Holy Spirit peaks your heart and you share and you open up and he does a work in you. But the Bible says that we are to confess our sins one to another and there pray for one another. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Oftentimes, people will take that context and say, man, the prayers of the righteous avail much. The, the prayers work much. That scripture is given in the context of authentic confession, not just random moment prayers, but in that culture and context of confession taking place. And then the writer goes on to detail Elijah, who is one of the most influential prophets in all of scriptures. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That speaks to me again within the context of confession that there's a fruitfulness to the activity. There is a fruitfulness to the practice as it's invested over time, and it will eventually bear something that delivers fruit. I think part of our issue, if I could be honest with confession, is certainly one of mine, is that we don't know how to confess. We honestly oftentimes will recoil back to a notion of, okay, we just have to cover up and we have to control. We have to cover up and control the facts and change the facts. We get that from our ancestors in Adam and Eve. When they are confronted with a sin, they cover and they control. They cover and they control. Adam and Eve are covered with fig leaves, and Adam tries to say, well, it was her fault, and God, ultimately, it's your fault because you gave me her. They try to cover and control rather than just confess. 
Another conundrum that we have is often when we're caught, we think, okay, well, what's the point in coming clean? I've been caught. It's too late now. So we spend our energies and our resources covering up, recoiling, uh, working hard to construct an alternative, always more flattering view of reality that we think is going to benefit us. All the while, we are unwittingly causing further undue harm to ourselves and to those around us. Listen to this. Please hear these words today. Mercy doesn't care how it gets in the room. Mercy does not care how it gets in the room. That's a nice thought, but it's not just my own creation. It is the person and example that Jesus gives us. Mercy doesn't care how it gets in the room. We see this in a moment with Zacchaeus, who's a chief tax collector in Luke chapter 19. He's climbing a tree to see Jesus walking through the town. He's climbing the tree, we assume, because he's a short little man. The Bible talks about his stature. But I would suggest it's also because he doesn't want to push through the crowd and be around people that don't want him around. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He has done so many people wrong, and he climbs a tree, and Jesus calls him out and says, Hey, Zacchaeus, I want to have dinner with you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you think you have to do to get to a place, Jesus knows where you are. Jesus knows you by name, and nothing else matters except the fact that he wants to be with you. In John chapter 4, there's a woman who's going out to a well, a Samaritan woman, a, a, a shady Samaritan woman who's not had one husband but has five husbands, and they have this really awkward conversation, Jesus and this woman at the well. It seems to me that the woman at the well doesn't even know she's doing anything wrong except she's walking out to the well in the middle of the day. Why? Because she doesn't have many friends. She's not well-connected relationally, perhaps a little bit of an outcast. And Jesus engages her, and all the while is getting to the point of, hey, bring your husband. He finally gets to the point they're having a spiritual conversation, they're having a geographic conversation, they're having all these things. And Jesus finally asks her, hey, where's your husband? Bring your husband. And she makes the comment, well, you know, he's not my husband. No, no, neither all the other men that you've been with. And Jesus speaks to her and brings life to her and heals her. And she goes back to the town and realizes, I've met the Messiah. I've met God himself. He told me everything about me. And the whole town is in an uproar because this woman was one way and now she's another it doesn't matter if you are climbing a tree because you want to see Jesus or you kind of bump into him and you don't know who he is. Mercy doesn't care how it gets in the room. Maybe you find yourself like the woman in John 8 who was caught in the midst of sin, dragged out to the city center to be stoned to death, already convicted, and Jesus gives mercy to her. Jesus gives mercy to all those who are ready to throw stones. Mercy doesn't care how it gets in the room. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture is Luke chapter 15, verses 11 and through 32. It's the story of the prodigal son. And now Zacchaeus and the Samaritan woman and the woman who's caught in adultery, those are all beautiful depictions of how God treats those in sin and how mercy really doesn't care how it gets in the room, whether you're caught, you're unaware, or you know who you are and you're trying to get to a place where you can see Jesus. 
But this one takes on a little bit different of a context because in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is making this story up. That is more illustrative to me because it's not just God working with what's coming his way, but Jesus is taking the empty canvas and saying, hey, from scratch, I'm going to tell you about a son who did a father wrong. I'm going to tell you about a son who wanted his father dead and went and chose another way and emphatically sinned and unpacks this story. And understand that's all illustration. Jesus is using it specifically to show how the father is then looking for his son. As the son is coming back, rehearsing an apology, rehearsing a repentant paragraph, rehearsing all of these things. The father, the Bible says the father sees him while he was a long way off and he runs. I personally think that story should be renamed from the prodigal son to the running father. The prodigal son is not the central figure of the story. It's the father who is the figure that depicts God. Jesus is not telling us about the sinner. He's telling us about the heart and nature of God who is looking for the lost one, who is wanting for the lost one, and who when he sees the lost one doesn't need the repentance, doesn't need the, 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 the declaration of I've been wrong and all the things that I've done. He doesn't need all that because he's already running out to meet. The son, mercy, my point is this, simply that mercy doesn't care how it gets in the room. Confession isn't just saying what you've done. It's not just coming clean. Confession is the act of truth-telling about oneself for the purpose of letting go, for the purpose of choosing better, for the purpose of walking out on what one has created for himself or herself, your thoughts, your actions, your feelings of shame, whatever it might be, so you can walk into what God has for you, what God has created, health, freedom, new. We see this in all of those stories that I just unpacked. Zacchaeus is granted to have time and space with Jesus. And Jesus details that you are a son of Abraham. He restores in an instant who Zacchaeus really is. He brings life and purpose and restores the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He tells the woman who's caught in the midst of adultery, you're free, go and sin no more. He gives her a new lease on life. It was all about to end, and then he makes it, Jesus makes it a beginning. And of course, the prodigal son meets his running father and doesn't have time to apologize, say anything. He is just immediately granted everything that he had given up. Confession. God still sends. Just like Nathan was sent by the Lord, God still sends to you, to me, to all of us. Maybe in conversations, maybe in a moment of confrontation with the Holy Spirit, our conscience, the voice of God. Imagine, confessing is more about you than anyone else. Imagine that when you confess, 
you will then be able to secure the wholeness that you have desperately been trying to manufacture on your own by by moving around some of the facts and trying to make something look better than what it really was. Perhaps just coming clean and confessing and opening your soul up to do what God wants to do. As opportunity today, I want to challenge you to engage confession. I want to point out that when we're younger, many of us, we learn how to apologize in one form or another, but confession, confession is largely left out of the lexicon of our language. We aren't given the words. We're not given the way. We're not given the means, really, to enter into confession. What does it mean? What does it look like to confess? And so we here at Life Church have been for some season of time investing in the practice of confession in corporate worship. We would do a prayer of confession. We would have a prayer of silence and a prayer of assurance. All of those things put together, I believe, form a very healthy, God-prescripted way of confession. And so I would like to move through these together here at the end of our time together. I'm going to read a confession prayer, and you are more than welcome to read along with me. And then we're going to have a, a silence prayer, just a few moments And then we're going to give ourselves those moments, allow Holy Spirit to speak to us. Because perhaps the things that we confess aren't going to be things that resonate in your own life. But I would suggest in that moment, as you make yourself available, God will start to pique your imagination and your soul and what you need to speak to, what you need to let go of, what you may need to have a conversation with after the fact. Or maybe you just need to let go of something in your heart. And then finally, we're going to have a prayer of assurance where we grab hold of God's promises and what he really has for us on the other side of confession. So first, the confession prayer. Father, I confess I have fallen short, gone my own way. I have sinned in anger. I have preferred myself over others, over you. I have lusted. I have been careless and hurtful with my words. I have lashed out. I have held back when I could have given. Now for the silence prayer. We're going to pray this short prayer together. We're just going to take a moment and we ask these words. Holy Spirit, help us. Lead us. Now let's read the assurance prayer together. Father, thank you for your fresh mercies. Thank you for never leaving me, for never forsaking me. Thank you that your love is steadfast and towards me. Thank you that you remain faithful when I do not. Thank you for coming after me and looking for me when I wander, get lost, and choose to leave you. I choose to accept your mercy. I embrace your acceptance of my repentance and of me. And I praise you for sufficient grace right here and right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, for our practice this week, you guessed it, confession. 
take moments as you're in prayer and meditation, because I know you're continuing to invest those practices as well as your scripture reading and maybe celebrating communion with someone close to you, that when Holy Spirit speaks to you to perhaps confess a sin or confess an attitude or confess a, a treatment of a fellow human, whatever it might be, don't just let that moment pass by, but confess it. And maybe it is with another person, or maybe it's just in that moment with God's Holy Spirit. But practice confession this week. Let me leave you with this benediction. May we confess and let ourselves be healed. May confrontations with others, leadership of Holy Spirit, find grounding in what we ourselves can own and therefore be established in this fruitful act of confession. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better.